Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. All right, it's episode 66 and we're in the Kosha countdown to Earth Day. We're kicking off the count with Anamaya Kosha, the food body. And we're going to play with the koshas as a way not only to view the external world, but to feel into our interdependence with the earth through our shared stories. That's what we do. We talk about the stories our bodies hold and tell with an aim to collect, to connect the individual to the collective. And what better way than starting with Mother Earth? And starting at our own starting point, which is we are back in the koshas. <laughs> right? Season um, one. Um, uh, and season one wasn't Anamaya Kosha, not only season one, but after the trailer, of course, episode one. Absolutely. So, yeah, the world always comes back to full circles. Here we go. Are we spiraling in or are we spiraling out? That is the I question. Know. Yes, yes. I mean, spirals do go in two directions. And you know that I love spirals. I do. In fact, it's so funny. You were talking about pendulums the other day. And I said, I've got one right here. And it was right next to me. And it's got, it's a spiral pendulum. Isn't that just like the necklace that I'm wearing? Yep. And ah. I have a necklace that has red beads that also has this kind of spiral. But, you know, what is yes? Ooh. Is my name Sherry? Is my name Teresa? Ah. Whoa, that is one smart pendulum. As, as Sherry asked her questions, all the yeses were yeses and the no was clear. <laughs> There's a clear change in direction in that pendulum. Thank oh you, my gosh, pendulum. I haven't had a pendulum. I remember I had them in high school and loved them. I don't know what happens when we step away from certain things, but. Right. Now, could digress. that be part of like the magnetic part of the earth? Is that part of the story that, you know, we're going to get to the other layers of the koshas, which are going to get a little bit more subtle, that will talk to energy and communication that is not so visible. But it makes me kind of think that there's this interim space between our corporeal selves, our physical bodies, the food body, the earth, and the communication we have with spirit and the, the bigger <laughs> energies. But that's for another day. That's, that's for another day. Yeah. But, you know, for those coming back to what is Anamaya Kosha, right? Anamaya Kosha is the food body. And if you want to know more about like the cliff notes of the koshas, you can just uh, in the show notes, there's going to be a link to just download a couple of cards. Real simple, but they give you the cliff notes of each of the koshas that we'll be talking about over the next five weeks. 
And but for those was... of you who are not of our generation, Cliff's Notes are summaries. <laughs> like Monarch, they are Monarch Notes also. I forget what they're called today. My kids called them something else. So for the young ones out there, they're the summaries of the summaries of the summaries. And with some beautiful pictures as well. In the cards, that is, not in the summary. Right, right, right. Uh, so I'm anyway, sorry. what are we talking about? We're, ta we're moving up to Earth Day and looking at Anamaya Kosha and through the lens of not only our physical body, but how we relate to the Earth and the Earth itself. And Sherry, thank you for sending me the link to listen to Sadhguru and interpretation or his sharing, his teaching is a better word, his teaching about the Koshas. And I have a little quote from him that really kind of touched me while I was listening. He said, our physical body, the physical body that you carry around is just a heap of food. Whatever you have eaten, or it's a piece of the planet. And wow, because our food grows out of the earth and our food all walks, well, if you're not vegetarian, mostly, and definitely grows out of the soil on the planet. So our body is dependent upon us carrying around this food sack. I never really thought of myself as just a food sack, but when I was listening, I was like, this makes so much sense that our systems are all fed by what, obviously we know this, this sounds so silly when I hear it coming out of my own mouth, but everything we put in, it's like garbage in, garbage out. What we put in feeds each and every cell and we need to sustain ourselves with what we can gather from the earth. And Sadhguru, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase, and it's something like this. He says, we come from the soil, we consume from the soil, and we return to the soil. Something like that, which is also, you know, an interesting piece that connects us, that also connects through the spirit tradition of, of yoga, is this idea of creation, preservation, and destruction, these cycles that we all move through. I mean, we just, it's just new, newly spring, the vernal equinox happened, I think, yesterday. Yesterday. And, and we're, we're recording on the 21st. And so we're in the cycle of spring, of the renaissance, of, you know, sort of rebirth and the things that are coming out. So there was this winter is kind of, you know, people say, you know, uh, creation, preservation and destruction. But there's also a space in between destruction and creation. And part of my feeling of that cyclically in the seasons is winter. Winter is that time after, you know, we've done fall harvest and we have this blanket of coolness, of hibernation, of, of slowing down before the regeneration that spring brings, that's rebirth, that can bring in and summer is the preservation. And then slowly in autumn, things begin to decay. And then we have that sort of winter silence. So that's another way that the earth reflects the physical body is the cycles that we move through. And we, you know, like the earth has, it has its own cycles of decay. The body also goes through its own cycles of decay. I'm sorry, spoiler alert, we're all going to die one day. And so we don't die looking as fresh as we did in our 20s. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying this, it's a little glib, but I'm not taking into account all of the tragic before their time kind of things. But if we move through the cycles as in the big picture, then we're going to experience that. Yeah, you were just, when you were talking about blanketing the earth in the winter and that time to kind of like settle in and recharge, because we did some episodes on wintering in the past, so you can go back and listen to those. But this time to settle in and the cycle of just kind of nurturing, nourishing, cuddling up with those blankets being covered 
And it reminded me of some of the things I've learned about soil. Now, when I was in high school, way, way, way back then, I worked for a place called Gob Farm. And one of the practices that they had was overwintering crops. They didn't till their fields. Now, this is back in 1975. What they did was they would plant an overwintering a wintering crop. I don't remember what it is. Sorry. But what it did was... I remember from 1975. I know. I, I, was, I, know. I was seven. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was a little bit older than that. <laughs> but the idea then was to not till the soil, to give the earth a blanket of something that would allow for all of the organisms that live in the soil in overwinter to have them have a blanket, just like we take a blanket in the winter. And then in the summer, uh, in the spring, when it became time to plant, the soil was rich because all of those great microorganisms and, and insects that were aerating and all those worms that like to live down there were all doing their job under the soil. And now here, the earth, they treated the earth the same way they treated themselves as farmers. They were going into winter under blankets and they gave the earth a blanket as well. And the other thing that came up from that, and that's, that's incredible. I love when you know, the symmetry and the poetry you know, is not exact, but it fits perfectly, is this idea of ecosystems, you know, that the soil is alive. You know, I, one of the things Sadhguru said is that, I think, what was it, the most nutrient-rich part of the soil is in the first 12 inches of the topsoil, and that when we till it and when we do things to it, we're going a little bit deeper than that. But this idea of ecosystems and the mystery, I don't claim at all to be an expert in soil, in ecosystems, in ecology, in, you know, all of the, even the, the systems of the body. I'm still a curious seeker there. But I do know that I hear a lot about like gut flora. I hear a lot about, you know, the, the blood cells and, you know, the different ways we interact with our nerves and, and just, and the vagus nerve, which is now, you know, trending constantly. And I'm really piquing my curiosity. But this idea of all the mystery of what lives within our bodies, you know, whether, you know, what is the, um, the, the metaphor of the 12 inches, like how, how deep do we have to go into our body to find that nutrient rich experience? And maybe it's not about how deep we go, but being curious enough to even take a look. Yeah, absolutely. To spend time with ourselves and look inside. Ugh, I wonder what's going on in my soil. <laughs> Oh, was, that might be TMI. Yeah, we don't <laughs> want to know about that, really. <laughs> I was reading so, an article that the, the BBC had published, and it's an article that is called Why Soil is Disappearing from Our Farms. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It'll be in the show notes. But they talked about how nutrient-rich the soil was in the early days in Iowa. And it was like they called it black gold where all the farms, you know, things just kind of broke down and fed the soil, not a lot of tilling. But it go, the, this I found fascinating in relation to you saying that, you know, that rich soil at the top, uh, those first 12 inches. And this is, I'll read a little bit of it. They planted two different wheat crops side by side in, to compare. And so the first wheat crop is a perennial that we're used to. And it is harvested, I'm sorry, an annual. It's harvested each year, and then the, then the ground is tilled. The second wheat, and I'm quoting, is a domesticated variety of wild wheatgrass 
known as premium something or other. I can't pronounce. It's a big Latin word, which can be found growing across Central Europe and Western Asia. So they planted the two different crops side by side. And what they found was the second one, these roots, the wheatgrass roots, go down to about 13 or 14 inches. They go and they have this web where they intertwine and dig deep into the earth beyond that super, that topsoil, the superficial soil. And superficial fascia? I'm yes. sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> and yes. And then that web that happens as we come down. But the benefit was, is that it's a perennial. They can go as far, oh, interwined matting extending 10 feet. Did you say perennial or, perennial or annual? Perennial. The, okay. um, uh, the wheat that, we, that they were comparing it to was an annual that okay. and the ground needed to be tilled and harvested. Next to the wheat grass, which went down 10 feet, has this intertwined webbing system, just like Basha. Thank you for pointing that out. Really deep below that topsoil. And it's a perennial. So the need for refar like the need for tilling or removing is not there. It just comes back down, blankets the earth and keeps it warm all winter, and then grows back up the next season. So there are ways. I, I just found this whole exploration of how the earth and Anamaya kosher resemble each other to be fascinating. I want to recommend a book, which I know I recommended during the koshas in the first season, and it's Yuval Harari's, I have it in my head, a Yuval Harari uh, Sapiens. And it, it talks about, you know, the human evolution since like before, but really starting at the agricultural revolution. And I'm not going to get all into it, but it does address some of the things that we're talking about. And in terms of evolution, and the connections that we have with the earth, we're evolving. You know, we, the, the actions that we take have a direct effect on our physical bodies and all the other layers of the koshas, which we'll get to, as, you know, the things that we, the choices we do to the earth also has, have consequences. And I, sometimes when I'm driving around, I think about what the earth must have looked like in medieval times. I'm a big King Arthur fan, or I used to be back in the 90s. And I would imagine sometimes when I would be reading a tale here or there about the Knights of the Round Table, what it would be like to be riding a horse through more wild terrain and paths that were forged simply because they were trod on so often. And that how we decided where we were going to pave Mother Earth, where we were going to destroy and how we were going to... Now, and I say that not with judgment because... We need destruction is a necessary part before creation. So we're in a constant cycle of creation, preservation, destruction, and then that, that space in between. So it's not like, oh my God, what did we do? But, you know, we did it for progress and so that we could live in a certain way and, you know, for better or worse, our actions have consequences. And so the scars that we have in inflicted on this earth and the water and the air and in our food, and that comes back to the soil. One of the things Sadhguru had said, and I know that I tend to talk in circles, was that the soil was more so much more nutrient-rich decades ago. That, And I forget the, the food that he talked about, but he said, you have to have X amount today for the same amount of nutrition from one back in the 1960s. And so, you know, and that's not so long in our history. I mean, I was born in the 60s and I know Teresa was 60s, 70s, I was 70s, 80s. And so we were all, we were around during this time. And food was, my grandmother was 101 when she died. My grandfather was almost 100. 
and they never mentioned the word organic. They ate chocolate and red meat and they did all of the things you're not supposed to do and eat the food you're not supposed to eat because in their day, it was just food. It wasn't treated with so many of the herbicides and pesticides and insecticides and all of the things that you know have, have had consequences on the nutritional value of our food today. And, you know, there are some scary statistics about, you know, how much food, you know, like, what is it? I don't have them in front of me right now. Nice, because I actually did yesterday. I don't know where I put them. But there's, if you go and Google, you know, soil and food, you're going to, you're going to come up against some interesting statistics. Maybe I'll put some things in the show notes. In the show notes for that. Show notes. Yeah. You know, I got a really... In addition to the soil and, you know, we're talking about earth and the food body, you know, the earth is the supplier of our food. So it's so hard to extricate the earth from Anamayakosha. Uh, we eat what the earth has to offer. They're so intertwined. And again, coming back to listening and reading. So Sadhguru said this and I did some research because I did not know it, but that humans and the earth are made up of mostly obviously, where we're eating what comes out of the earth, that we have the same elements of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. Hydrogen, And of course, there's smaller elements that are in there, like calcium and phosphorus. But we live with the same needs. And that's what, that's what kind of settled in my mind, is that if we're made up of the same thing, then we require the same things for sustenance and the same things to keep us healthy and and producing whatever it is that we produce. And I began to pay attention to, uh, because I was reading a lot about soil and it was talking about the soil drying out and some of this desertization of the soil. I started reading that word desertization of the soil, where it's just lacking nutrients and lacking hydration. And as I was reading, and maybe you can hear it as I'm talking, I started to notice how dry my mouth was. And I work as a body worker. Um, if you've listened to more than one show, you probably already know that. And one of the things I'm always saying to my clients is drink water, drink water. And I think I do a fair amount of water, but we also can become chronically hydrated. And when we're chronically hydrated, our nutrients aren't absorbed in the best way. Hydrated or dehydrated? We need to become hydrated because right. we are dehydrated. Right. No, I thought you said chronically hydrated. Oh, sorry. If I did, yeah. <laughs> my apologies. Chronically dehydrated. We would love to be chronically hydrated. Right. So would the earth. I'm like, well, basically, maybe balancedly hydrated is a better word. We don't want yes. flooding either, right? Because that causes a whole different problem for both us and the earth. Right. You know, too much water is also not good for us. But, you know, what happens to our body if we are dehydrated? Maybe our skin is wrinkly and dry. I can feel it in people sometimes when I am offering them touch at, at, during their massage. Wow, think, tissues feel, can feel dry. And water is the solution to rehydrating them. It's also what's needed to help the digestive process and the absorption of nutrients. All the things that we want our plants to be able to do so that they feed us healthy, juicy, tasty, Food. Yes. I like the tasty part. I like the tasty part too. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, we talked a little bit about being made of all of those elements because in his poetry, he would talk about us 
you know, being made of stars, stardust, and how all of those elements kind of, you know, created the world and created us. And we are, you know, we are inextricably connected to every other thing that is made of those things. So it's again that are we a drop in the ocean or an ocean in the drop? Um, my husband, everything, you know, drink more water. Doesn't matter what it is, drink more water, drink more water. And I keep thinking of that the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where he would spray Windex on everything. <laughs> if you had any good, I would spray some Windex on it. I had a zit this morning. I sprayed some Windex on it. And did he both start with W? Is that a coincidence? I don't mm -hmm. think so. But water does seem to be, you know, one of the things. But like you said, we have to be in balance. Um, in 1988, I did an archaeological dig in Ashkelon in Israel, and the person who was leading it, she said, if you are thirsty, it's too late. Keep ahead of it. You have to drink, 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 because by the time you get thirsty, you're already dehydrated. It's too late. And of course, that's also in the extreme, you know, Middle Eastern sun. And we got up at four in the morning and we had to be done by noon because the sun was too strong. But even then, if you're thirsty, it's too late. And the, the other thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about just the connection to the earth, I remember teaching a class one time and I forget what the, the theme was that it must have been something earthy. But I said, who out there would be vegetarian if you had to kill your own meat? And almost every hand went up. That the thing that happens, I think, in our culture and the evolution of our food and our connection to our food is that it's become so sanitized. You know, even going in to get organics at certain places, triple wrapped in plastic, it just doesn't feel right to me. Like, are you kidding? That just, it feels like you're missing the point almost. But that when the butcher does the job and everything is sort of nicely, you know, packaged for you to now just cook, you don't have to bleed it. You don't have to pluck it. You don't have to shave. You don't have to do the, the grisly work. But that, in I, I have to imagine back in the beginning of our times, uh, you know, probably wasn't so prevalent. Our, our machinery, our weaponry probably wasn't so, you know, great that we were feasting on boar every night, but that it was a special thing. And there were probably some rituals attached. I have no idea. I'm making shit up now. But I find it very interesting that our connection to our food has suffered as a result of packaging. And so I know, Teresa, you do the, the farmer's market and you know, the CSA, and I do the CSA also, and also have a garden. And everything changed when I picked my first tomato myself. And I don't love tomatoes. I have to take the seeds out. I know nightshades, I like to peel the skin off. But to be able to eat that juicy, delicious tomato tasted so much better coming out of my garden than anything I've ever eaten out of a supermarket. I remember having my garden and I planted it along my pathway from where I parked my car into my house through my backyard. And so I had I had lettuce growing there and kale and spinach, and I had all of this food growing on the pathway. When I would come home for lunch, I always had a little basket at, at the end. I would put it there in the morning when I left, if it wasn't raining or anything. And then as I came, I would pick it up and then I would pick my lunch on my way into the house. I don't know that my food tasted so much better than others. I thought it did because I grew it. I got on my hands and knees. I dug the hole. I put the plant in. I watered it. I loved it. I battled the gophers for it. I did everything. You know, and that is the other thing about like your own food. I remember one day I came home and in the morning when I left, oh, I was just thinking about my kale salad when I got home. I The kale looked beautiful. It was so ready to harvest. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have this, this delicious 
kale Caesar salad. I love Caesar salad. And I come home and the gopher took every plant off at the ground. I was crying. First of all, I was hungry. I had no lunch, so I probably was a bit angry. But anyway, in addition to the earth feeding my body, I had a very, very well-fed gopher that lived with us as well. And that's part of the cycle too. You know, it's that survival of the fittest. It's, you know, you, everyone has to eat the food the earth provides. And, and we, we as humans think that we can control certain things. We have a fence around our raised garden. We're doing everything we can to mitigate that kind, like the rabbits and the, you know, this is the first year we're probably going to actually use netting for our blueberries because every time the blueberries show the night before and we think, oh, by morning, they're going to be so perfect, they're gone because the birds come and get them. So we can't really put a fence around the birds, but we're doing everything we can to mitigate the other little critters that are are hungry. But then we put a bird feeder out in the front and we want to feed the birds. We want to be a part of the abundance of of the exchange, you know, because that is our birthright. We get to live in the abundance and just because the, the, you know, the bird might eat a few blueberries doesn't mean there aren't more to be had. The early bird, that's what they say. You know, you want the That's food, a worm. Gotta, I they know. Eat all the worms they worms. fucking want. I don't worms, want the worms. Blueberries, they're up before we are. <laughs> Although the worms, we, we've talked about the worms. You know, I used to have a very different relationship to worms than I do now. And you, know, you should have seen me running and screaming into my house as a pregnant, you know, woman moving from New York City and thinking, oh, just weed a few weeds from my front of the garden that the previous owners had done. And so I'm weeding and first earthworm I saw, I hauled it my ass into the house so fast. <laughs> now it's like, oh, thank you so much for aerating the earth underneath my beautiful crops. Mm. Yes. Oh, those worms are so valuable. I remember finding a few myself and it was only one or two that really, I never got, got up running, but I was like, ooh, I have to go around the worms. But then I would just pick them up and go, could you wait over here till I plant this lettuce and then I'll stick you back in your hole, cover you up and you can feed and do what you need to do. So the worms still no longer bother evolved. me. <laughs> I'm still not that evolved. I wouldn't pick them up. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. So there's so much going on with how the earth and the body come together. And we both have trash, right? We, if we are just the big heaps of food that we put into our body, our trash comes out in the digestive system, the things that no longer serve us. We take out as many nutrients as our digestive system is capable of working on. And the rest, it goes away and we let it go off and be processed someplace else. And I'm not going to go down that hole because this is not an Ayurvedic conversation about poop. But stay <laughs> tuned. We could have an Ayurvedic conversation about poop. This is more about garbage. <laughs> right. Another similarity that we have with the earth, the earth has certain things that it needs to get rid of, but how much of it is ours, right? So we have our bodily waste that is just a natural process, as do all living beings have their own bodily waste as things go through our processing plant and are used and not used. But I want to share a story about trash and how that impacts some of these ecosystems and the ecological issues that we have because we are coming up with Earth Day. So I have a piece of property that I camp on at uh, Van Skyver Lake. And if you don't know Van Skyver Lake, it's owned by Penn Warner, the trash company. And so that means that the lake is an old quarry that is surrounded by 
the landfill. So it looks like it has really nice green hills around it, but beneath all of those hills is all of our trash. And one of the things that happened when I was there is, first of all, I learned we need to pay attention to the things we pay attention to. And the other is that all day, six and a half days, from morning till night, from four o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, garbage trucks go through the way station and drop our trash on those hills over and over and over again. And we make so much trash. This morning, I went in the complex where I live to throw away my trash. And for whatever reason, and I'm not judging, but the complex has not had the garbage picked up. So there are full dumpsters and piles of trash that don't fit in, littering the street, being ripped apart. So now they're not only not contained in the very plastic bags that were given to throw them away in, but they're being ripped apart and blown apart. And so going back to organic food being wrapped in layers of plastic, we have so many farmers markets and CSAs and ways to maybe step in with small baby steps on changing the amount of trash that we have. I recently went to, uh, I live in Pennsylvania. I was in New Jersey. I needed to run into the food store to pick up a couple of things. Well, they no longer give you bad speech. I had to carry it out, which is great. I usually always have my bags. All my bags are in my car, but I did not realize. And, you know, I am guilty of sometimes forgetting to pick up that bag and bring it into the store. But in this particular instance, it reminded me that I don't need their plastic bags. So I left it in the cart and then put it in a bag that was in my car. But it was that reminder that there are some small steps that can change how much trash we use. I was having dinner with a friend once and she's about 15 years older than I am. And she said something funny. She put her napkin aside because barely used it at the meal. And she goes, you know, you're, you know, you're aging when you don't throw your napkins away and you save them. And I was like, I don't think it's a matter of age. It's not dirty. You can use it over and over. But it was just such an interesting thing to notice that even that napkin did not need to go in the trash because it was barely used. It was there to set a beautiful table. Yes. And, it made, and then the conversation turned to, and maybe next time we'll use paper napkins. I mean, not paper napkins. I'm sorry, cloth napkins. I know a lot of, we have to go through the cycles to learn shit. I mean, it's New Jersey not giving bags, other places treating plastic bags for paper bags, which I think is fabulous because even the brown paper for you were talking about the trash, we have an outdoor compost and an indoor compost. For Christmas, I got a Lomi machine, which is really awesome. So during the winter, instead of running out to the mess that has become my outdoor compost, which I'm cleaning up this summer or this spring, uh, you just put it in, dehydrates it down. And I now have like a barrel of incredible compost that has already broken down. They say the more diverse the, the scraps you put in, the more nutrient rich it'll be. And I've already folded it into some soil for onions that I'm growing indoors before I put them outdoors. But, you know, when we had our gardener come in, it was not really a gardener, but this, this kid who was helping us get our garden together and he kind of disappeared. And I'm sad about that because he was amazing. But he put together this compost in the corner of our garden, which is just like a big rubber round thing. Like he just attached it with some pins. 
And the way he made it sound, I mean, he's much younger than I am. And if I were 20 years younger, it would have sounded different. But he was like, oh, it's easy. Just put it in. There was no turning of it. But each year you open it up, rake it out, take the bottom stuff, and that should be ready to go. And then put it and break it back in and close it up. Sounds simple enough. Well, I tried it last year, almost broke my back doing it. It was so heavy. It was so clumsy. And I couldn't actually return the, the cylinder to its original shape. So it's kind of folding in on itself. And it looks like it's breaking down into the compost now too, which is not a good thing necessarily. But the stuff that was in there, like three years worth of compost, and I've added a few more things that sometimes I'll put in the brown paper bags with the scraps and just throw the whole bag in there because the, the brown bag, dead leaves, things like that, add carbon to the very nitrogen-rich elements that come from the food scraps. So you need a balance of the nitrogen and the, car and the carbon is what he was suggesting. So those brown paper bags have come in really handy and I'll just kind of throw them in together. Everything is breaking down, I think, in another three or three to five years. That corner is going to be fucking, you said it earlier, black gold. And that's what someone else referred to, like, oh, my God, in a few years, your compost is going to be black gold. And so I thought, oh, that's really cool. And I had gotten a new contra a contraption that is more suitable to a woman of my age <laughs> that will be a little bit easier once we put it together, that you put it in and then there's a drawer on the bottom that you pull out that will take the bottom layer and, you know. So for whatever that's worth, the compost has been, you talk about the things are our waste. So I'm a lot less like panicked or freaked out. And there aren't really the right words, but I'm a lot less annoyed <laughs> maybe of the, of the scraps that end up in the compost, because I know that that's going to feed the next things that I'm growing. So it's all part of the cycle rather than throwing it out and wondering where the hell it's going to end up. I know where it's ending up. It's ending up continuing to nourish us. So for whatever it's worth. And I guess I'll put low me down. No one's paying me to promote low me, but it's it's definitely uh, a special item. It's not something everyone needs to have, but you know, it's been <laughs> lovely. <laughs> I like to compost. Uh, it sounds clean and not smelly. Sometimes people's objection to composting in their house is the mess it makes. And this sounds like a really beautiful and nice, clean way that all of us can do it. And I don't know too much about it. I assume, and so I'm assuming, this is only Teresa talking, that if it's good for our vegetable plants, maybe it's also good for our house plants. So it's still another way to nourish another living being with the waste that is coming out of our food. And in the Lomi, just, I'm sorry, just to, to wrap this all up, they have charcoal filters. So rather than having to put mm. in, and it also has a setting for household waste, certain things you cannot do, like certain plastics and other industrial things, but there are other household items you can put into the Lomi, but you'd have to read up on that. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to need a Lomi. <laughs> I definitely think I'm going to need a Lomi very, very, very soon. So I was really excited in my research today when I started looking at, you know, soil, the earth, and Anamaya Kosha that my research on Google led me to the Britannica. And it kind of was like, I had to click on it because when I was a kid, we had the big blue books on the shelf. And you and I were talking about this briefly before. There was always the sales guy who came and gave us the yearly update of different things. But in the Britannica, there was an article published through Google that's called, and it'll be in the show notes, we could lose, could we lose all the soil on earth? 
And it is about this upper layer of um, upper layer of the soil and what happens when it's tilled and it's able to blow away and all the microorganisms are just blowing away. We need all that stuff to stay in because that black gold is food. And it's not like, what was it? The Beverly Hillbillies. And the Beverly Hillbillies, the black oil. gold was, was oil. <laughs> so we got two different kinds of black gold and one you can eat. That's really a good black gold. Not judging any other kind of black gold. I just love to eat. So the Britannica, what I took away from it is that the soil is a habitat for life. Soil equals food. And that is something most of us are really, really thrilled to have on our tables. And not everybody is lucky enough to have a plate of delicious food on their table every single night. So soil is food. It also, with Sadhguru, talked about the difference between civic issues and ecologic issues and how we can look at the two through different lenses. And in this, I know we weaved back and forth between plastics and garbage. And, you know, I talked about the garbage not being picked up. Some of those are very civic issues of things that we need to do to up after ourselves, to be responsible for what we, what we throw away, what we consume, what we purchase, and how we purchase it where our garbage goes, and do we take it to the bin? And I'm sure there's so many more civic issues that we can think about in relation to upcoming Earth Day of keeping our Earth clean and pristine so that she can show off all of her beauty, especially here in spring when we're watching everything pop up through the Earth. I saw some daffodils opened today. And then we have the ecological systems. How do we make choices that allow us to have as much black gold as possible, that maybe permaculture practices that conserve and direct our water to places that our plants can benefit from it in the same way that each and every cell in our body benefits from being able to drink that water that we are protecting at such a high cost. There's so many places in the country that are struggling for water that when we can look through the lens from a variety of different directions. For me, anyway, when I can look at the difference between pick up your garbage and make sure you don't leave a mess and how do I plant my garden, those are two different lenses that will lead to the same thing, a healthy mother Gaia, because she is amazing. I think one of the ways that we can start is just being aware. And I think one of the things we do is we take advantage, we take for granted not advantage. We do take advantage, but we also take for granted that the soil is there because it's always been there. You know, we can't imagine a world without it because we haven't lived in a world without it. Maybe we saw, you know, Thunderdome or Mad Max or some other dystopian futuristic movie that depicted a world that, you know, where we're fighting for water and gasoline. And these things are potential realities down the way. But in the same way that we also take for granted that we're going to wake up tomorrow. Like there's this, we take for granted the cycles are, they're natural and they're occurring and we're part of it. We're not separate from it. And, you know, going back to the trash piece and the taking for granted, when I was helping my siblings clean out our childhood home after our parents died, you were talking about Britannica. We had the World Book Encyclopedias and we still had them all intact. We had a big dumpster in the driveway for all of the things that we weren't going to be able to take with us. You know, there's only so much we can also hold that there's 
what are what were what was their trash? What did they leave behind? Not even trash, but what was it that was left behind that needed to be absorbed by the world, by the earth? And those world book encyclopedias, as much as we were attached to them sentimentally from doing all our book reports as kids, you know, referencing this one and that one and, you know, sitting with the actual book. And I could still feel those slick, you know, sort of glossy pages that everything was. Oh, be careful. You know, I love the texture of books. (laughs) I do. And, And the smell, like all of the senses that these books evoke from, you know, just being in contact with them, they had to go in the dumpster. They had to go into the big trash receptacle and what went with them. It wasn't just the pages of the book. It wasn't just the food body of the book. It was, and this is going to leak into other koshas, but it was emotional memory. It was our wisdom body. It was, you know, all of the things, the origin stories that started in those pages and now have come to the end of their cycle and have to now return to the earth. And so, you know, we can look at trash in from many different perspectives and in many different ways. And, you know, some things are more easily absorbed. You know, we talk about plastics and the first thing I think of is the movie, The Graduate, you know, when Dustin Hoffman's swimming in the pool and the dad's friends like, I've got a, you know, plastics, that's the future plastics. And, you know, it, it was, but only for a while, like we, we're going through these cycles. I mean, plastic is with us forever because even if we didn't manufacture another piece, it would still be here. My dogs are going nuts. Um, but, uh, oh, and then there was one other thing I wanted to say that is kind of disconnected to what we've already been talking about. So before I switch gears, did you have something you wanted to share in this realm? It looked like you were maybe taking notes. I didn't know if there was something oh, no. you wanted no, to share. No, I, I, no. I was just talking. No, I didn't okay. have it. We can <laughs> <Okay>. go on. <laughs> I just, I didn't want to completely yeah. shift gears without honoring. So in my morning practice every day, and this is coming back to the stories that our bodies hold and tell and how we are, you know, part of this exploration with Anamaya Kosha and the earth is to reveal how we are connected, how we are, we, we rely on each other for survival. You know, there is not, although the earth can survive without us, we can't survive without the earth. And so some of my practices, when I'm in my movement practice, I, I said it, I'm in a little sliver of hardwood floor between my bed and the window. But there's also a window in front of me where these very long, skinny trees are. And these are, I don't know if you've ever heard Ani DeFranco's song, you know, buildings and bridges are made to bend in the wind to withstand the world. It's what it takes. And so we need that flexibility. And you know, these are the trees I'm not afraid are going to end up falling on my house because they have that malleability and they sort of dance with the wind. And there's this feeling that when I'm standing in Tadasana, looking out the window, there's this one skinny tree that always feels like my spine when I look at it. So alternately, my spine or Sushumna, we've talked about Sushumna in regard to the chakras and the central channel, um, the bliss channel. And so if I'm look, when I'm looking out, not if, when I'm looking out at this tree, you know, sometimes I'll chant the Tatvamasi or Soham, this I am that, I am that, I am that. And But most of the time, it's an organic relationship. And as I'm inhaling and taking my hands up and lengthening up through my spine, I'm imagining the tree is doing the same, that the roots are getting deeper and that the top is lifting higher. And there's this dance that we do, but it is one of those things that starting my day every day, reminding myself, and that I am not separate from that tree. I am not separate. And then to the left, and we'll talk about this on the other koshas, there's a pond that 
on certain days clearly reflects. You can't tell the sky from the water. It is so clear. And so that's, again, the world, the earth reflecting our truth and who we are. And so if we can look and find those connections in nature, like this morning I saw it looked like a kiss mark in the top of the tree. And then right under it, it looked like a horizontal heart. And I went, like, thank you, universe, for, for sending some love my way today. And, you know, it could be my imagination. It could be the earth, you know, trying to communicate with me. But I decide it's the earth communicating with me. And so let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> if you know, you know. If you one. know, you know. Sometimes you just, uh, you feel it. It was like when I was, and I won't go too far into this because I, I know we're coming to end. But when I sat with my back against Demeter, my tree at my sit spot and we were so connected every day that I was there in the beginning the first couple of days I kept th the same thought would come I would shuttle up in my sit spot and I would lean against Demeter's trunk and I would say oh thank you for supporting me thank you for supporting me and by the third or fourth day I realized boy that is really all all one-sided in this relationship <laughs> you know what does Demeter feel with me leaning against her and so I had to change and say, like, you know, what can I do to support you? Rather than I, I realized that I was thinking in my head totally one-sided. So did, does the tree know that I'm there and do we share an energy? I don't know. But just like you, let it be written, let it be so. I decide to agree that it is. That's actually from the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry yes. I gave it away. So let it I be know. written, so let it be done. But yes. I, it's not a mistake that that's what your first impulse was. We grew up on the giving tree, and the giving tree only gave. The little boy was a dick. He gave nothing to that fucking tree, except in the beginning, it gave friendship. And then it was all about taking, taking, taking. And so that is, I think, part of our cultural consciousness is this giving tree. And I think what you just did was you rewrote the ending in a way that we can embrace more fully the reciprocal nature of human, animal, and and nature. Because and nature, we are nature. So it, it's even a false dichotomy to to put it that way. Yeah. Kind of the story my body holds about the experience was the felt sense of both of our skins co-supporting each other. So even now, some mornings, uh, it's not Demeter, but I have another uh, another friend that I'll stop by and lean up against when I take Siva for a walk just to like, ooh, kind of get that leaning up against the support feeling. I guess to come to the end of the things that I have to share today was a movie that I had watched and it was played on an, in the movie theater. Well, no, I'm sorry, in the drive-in. Snipes Farm has this drive-in company that comes and puts the screens and I was so excited that I could be at a drive-in movie again because there's so few of them. For those of you who might be young, there used to be big screens outside where we would park our cars and put a speaker on the window and we could watch movies outside in this big screen. But anyway, they have the outdoor screen in the summer and they played a movie called The Biggest Little Farm. And it's about a couple that decided that they wanted to leave LA and um, they pictured that they were coming out and they were going to have this farm and it was going to be lush and green and they were going to grow all of their crops. And all of those things were part of their expectation and, and the way they saw their life progressing. But when they got to the piece of property that they had gotten, it was desertized. It was depleted of a lot of its nutrients. 
And so I won't give the whole story away, but it kind of chronicles their like 10 years of bringing this, that piece of property that they got back to life. They found a farmer that, an older farmer that could advise them on how to work on the ecosystem and reawaken and create a harmony of balance. And as it is in nature, some things worked really well. Some things were really challenging. They learned that even though they believed that all insects, all animals were precious and they were all part of the system, sometimes it meant that a fox killed one of their chickens. So there was the natural life cycles that I guess uh, in the show they talk about maybe wasn't in their vision of uh, that sanctuary, but they were able to, with dedication and love and counsel, to be able to create that beautiful, lush, and rebring that world, that their farm back to life. Hmm. That's a beautiful story to, to end with the casual conversation part. I'm going to move a little bit into a practice part. We haven't done this in a while, but I think we have decided to resume adding some practices. And I just have a few suggestions, and they're maybe less formal practices than they are suggestions of activities you can do. First one is stomp. Like just stomp around, feel your earth body connect with the earth in a very deliberate way that is just like, oh, like stomping on the earth and move your arms and make faces and really let your body be a part of this stomp. And alternately, articulate. So move from the big stomp to walking really slowly, moving heel, baby toe, big toe as you articulate your foot and you walk, and this would be a barefoot activity, to really begin to feel the relationship. You're, you're not stomping on the earth. Now you're receiving the earth from your feet. And that becomes, you know, I've heard people say this. And I, it's one of those things I wish I'd made up that I protest with my feet when I'm marching. I am kissing the earth with my feet. I wrote that in a poem recently, but I'm sure I didn't make that up. There's this feeling of reverence on the earth. And then the other two things are plant-based. You know, you know, pick your own food either at a CSA or go to someplace and cook from food that you have been to the source. So whether it's your own garden or a local farm or a local farmer's market, to really commune with your, your vegetables and your food as you're cooking it and honoring the source. And in the same way, maybe you can even just get a plant from the supermarket, take care of it, make sure it's watered, make sure it's hydrated. And notice in those moments where maybe you forget to water your plant, did you also forget to water you? You know, to be able to be in relationship with the earth in a much more intimate way and notice what you notice about your own, because those are the stories we share. Those are the stories reflected in the world that we get to work with in a very real and tangible way. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to stomp right on uh, onto <laughs> my next adventure for the day, because I never really think about stomping, but mm, we howled at the moon in the summer during camps at our fire ceremony. So we howled. Now it's time to stomp. Make a little noise. Uh, I only have two very small things as just a simple suggestion. And one is go outside barefoot, like feel the earth. Let Notice the difference between walking on really moist grass or really dry dirt or even, you know, the forest floor where there might be some sticks and maybe it's not nearly as smooth and comfortable as some of the other places, but feel the earth, maybe pause and just stand still with those bare feet on the earth and 
see if you are at all aware of any vibration or any noticing of energy that's coming off the earth. And if not, just dance. Maybe go out and dance in the rain. I remember it was raining one day and it was a sun shower just um, maybe two years ago. And it, it was a hot summer day and I was so excited that the water came that I was out fully clothed just dancing in the rain and having a great time. So enjoy that water element whenever you can. And the last one is actually a yoga pose and it's child's pose. And the reason that I'm suggesting child's pose and I'm asking and suggesting that you do it outside was I've practiced child's pose so many times and, it's, and that's its name, child's pose, because you curl up and you come down to the earth like a kid would. Like, so... I began to think one day when I was in child's, child's pose, how playful it was and, you know, really connecting with that inner child. But as my thoughts kept going, I was in yin, so sometimes thoughts go and I can't stay with my breath. So, you know, we'll do that. Um, I started to realize just how reverent it was to, it was not only a child's pose, but I was bowing down with my forehead in connection with the earth. And because I did some, a lot of practicing outside while I was traveling and my forehead was resting against the earth as well as the front of my knees. And I was really used to my feet touching the earth and even my hands gardening, but there was something different about that kind of bowing down and having this reverence for and gratitude for the dirt that feeds me. So maybe child's pose outside beautiful beautiful mm -hmm. all oh, right and so one more thing my last thing oh how did i forget that and if you're looking for something to do we have an event coming up an earth day event that we want to work alongside you in a seva project so stay tuned because the where's the winds in the house are coming your way and keep your eyes out for an email that's going to be coming out tomorrow. We're recording today, so it's already come out. But that's um, going to give you early bird registration for Yoga Fest, which is May 20th. There's an early bird code. You can use either Teresa's or my name. It's all going to get to the same place. But we'll put the code in the show notes and also in a newsletter announcement. And we'll keep you informed weekly as to how to register. It's going to be a day, a Bucks County day of yoga in many different ways. I mean, they're just, Trina, who's putting it together, is drawing from so many different areas. So you will have a full, amazing day of activities. So we'll let you know about that too. That's Yoga Fest. That's May 20th. Um, keep your eyeballs open. And if you're not on our mailing list, why not? Like this is, we don't inundate your mailbox and we don't share your information. So it's just about communicating with you sharing stories and, you know, and the occasional poems. So in the show notes, there will be a place to get to our website where you can get onto our, our mailing list. And our link tree is always there as well. Yeah. And then that, don't forget that that link is going to lead you right through those kosha cards. So you'll be able to get your beautiful deck of all of the different koshas in your body. And the cliff notes. And the clip, yes, the clip yes. notes or whatever we're calling those these days. The notes, the notes, the sum notes. We'll call them sum notes, S-U-M. S-U-M, yes. Okay. Yes, we're, we're just changing the whole vocabulary, the whole vernacular. All right, until next time. Huh? Until next time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. 
for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.